We're coming to the end of the book of Mark. There is this passage, and then next week, and that is it. Then we'll turn our attention to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Irony is a literary technique that gives insight. It imparts a kind of wisdom because the audience knows something that the characters in the story or the characters on stage don't know. We see things they don't know. The author pulls back the curtain a little bit and lets us look around this side to see something that is not immediate, not apparent. For example, let's say you're making a movie or you're watching a movie and the camera fades in on a happy couple strolling the deck of an ocean liner. It is a beautiful day. The waves are small, the way is smooth, the sun is sparkling. The happy couple is happy. And then the camera hands over and shows a life preserver, and the name of the ship is on the life preserver, Titanic. And you and I now have knowledge that this happy couple does not have, and we, we, we can no longer enter into the story in the same way that they're experiencing it. We want to say to them, uh, get off the ship, to go to the captain, tell him to turn it around, because there's more going on than just the surface appearance. And that's ironic. It gives a kind of wisdom It imparts a kind of insight. Did you know that Mark, the author of Mark, was a master of irony? Did you know that? We've seen it throughout the book, but today the irony is in full gallop. The savior of the world doesn't even save himself. The son of the father can't find his father. The light of the world is veiled in darkness at noontime. And you and I kind of shake our heads and we say, well, something doesn't fit here. The light of the world in, in a noontime blackness. And the author is trying to show us something about our Savior, this King of the Jews. It's mentioned six times in the text we're about to read. It just keeps coming up, the King of the Jews, the King of the Jews, six times. Well, he doesn't look much like a king. No subjects, no authority, no country. Mark chapter 15 Verses 1 through 39. Would you like to turn there? Go ahead to the next slide, please. Mark chapter 15. It's a pretty long passage. I'm going to read it for you. You might want to be following along uh, in your Bible or a pew Bible. See if you can pick up on some of these ironies. Mark 15, 1 through 39. 
that Mark has woven in. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and took him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, uh, this is the Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. And the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate again said to them, what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking him, uh, striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour, that's about nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him 
also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Our Heavenly Father, as we open now your holy, infallible word, this story of the center point of human history. Give us ears to hear and a heart to receive your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you go to the next slide, please? Irony, irony number one, the word is silent. He only says two things in this whole passage. Uh, verse two, he gives this ambiguous response to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? And he says, well, you say so. And then on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's all he says. And everyone else is talking. The passers-by are talking, and the chief priests are accusing him, and Pilate gets in on it, and everybody's talking. But the word, the communication, the message, the preacher, the, the messenger from our Heavenly Father is silent. The leaders accuse him. The soldiers mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. They dress him in purple, kind of a nonverbal communication. Purple was the, uh, the color of royalty. It was very difficult to make purple dye. It was very expensive. And so only the rich people, the upper class, were even allowed to wear purple. And they put a purple robe on him, and it says that it, they dressed him. That word dress is an unusual word in the New Testament. It's only used two times. And the idea is they got him all dressed up. They got them all, you know, just right. They just, they put that robe on and, oh, no, no, the, the, the drape isn't quite right here. And here, pull it up on his shoulders a little. And they got them all dressed up and they knelt before him and they put a crown of thorns on him. And then they took a stick and they beat that crown of thorns. All this activity is going on. And he is like a lamb before the slaughter. Thank you, Ted. The word is silent. Those who pass by are uh, uh, mocking him. They used to have, uh, they used to put up uh, uh, 
uh, big poles that were stationed, they were permanent, they were stationed just outside the, uh, the main, the gate of the city, and that's where they would do crucifixions because they wanted everybody coming into the city, everybody going out of the city to, 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 to be able to see, here's what happens if you defy uh, Rome. And so everybody's coming and going, they're just mocking him. Oh, he's going to tear down the temple and build it again in three days? All right, get with it. Get with the program. Wagging their heads, walking by. The thieves on the cross are reviling him. But the word is silent. And so we're gaining some insight into the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of everybody. But he doesn't come with a battle standard and an army behind him. When he was reviled, he did not revile back again, but he just kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Another, another irony. The innocent son of the father is condemned. The guilty son of the father, who am I referring to? Barabbas. His name means son, bar, sort of like a, a bar mitzvah, when a son uh, comes of age. The son of Abba, Abba father, the son of the father, who is guilty. He is a murderer. He goes free. What a strange custom. But, but uh, the, the history verifies this. At Passover time, they would release a condemned criminal. This guy was a murderer. And uh, it was a custom they had. And so the crowd says, hey, Pilate, you know, hey, come on, it's Passover time. Release for us a prisoner. So he, Jesus says, okay, well, how about, how about the king of the Jews? No. Give us another uh, son of the father. Pilate's main goal was just to keep the peace. He knew that they had delivered Jesus over because of envy. He, knew, he found no you know, cause for death. He's pulling his hair out saying, what? And you and I read this story and we look at the actors on this stage and we kind of wag our heads and we say, well, this is... The guilty son of the father goes free. The theologians call this the substitutionary atonement, right? One is taking the place of another. Strange custom, but history backs it up. Two sons of two fathers one guilty, one innocent. And this, this, this principle of a substitution uh, is something that really captures our imaginations. We write a lot about it. it it's woven into a lot of our literature. For example, uh, The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. 
At the end of that story, this innocent guy takes the place. He's hung, if I remember right. He's killed. He takes the place. He substitutes for someone else. And, and uh, there's something about this that captures our imaginations. Remember Les Miserables? The main character, uh, Jean Valjean, is, is a terrible person. He's a thief. He's a street, street, you know, he's just not a good person. And he breaks into a priest's house and he's stealing the silver off of like the mantle and everything. And then the police catch him. Oh, he is in trouble. And then the priest comes out and he sees what's going on with the police and the, the guilty guy. And he says, oh, thank you for coming to pick up the silver. I was wondering when you were coming to get it. By the way, don't forget the candlesticks. And he goes to the mantles, big, heavy candle. Here, take these too. And the police are like, what? And Jean Valjean is like, what is this guy doing for me? And that, that act of grace and that sacrifice of the priest, you know, a kind of death, he's giving his riches, you know, that, that substitution, it changes his life. It changes his life. Tolkien talked about how our mythologies and our stories and our great literature are embedded in the true myth. This principle of substitution goes all the way back to theology. The innocent son of the father condemned. The guilty son of the father is released. The whole story seems out of control, at least you know, for Jesus. He's bounced around from this, in this kangaroo court. They, they never really found a charge that would stick, but uh, they got enough to go to Pilate, and uh, he, he's trying to set himself up to overthrow Rome, and Pilate's going, well, no, not, not really. What? How, where do you get that from? And he's just, it, it just seems out of control, and one of his own 12, one of the followers has betrayed him, and he won't even defend himself, and the whole thing is just spiraling down. Nobody's for him. His, his, the, the, the 11 have fled. No, it's very much in control, very much in control. Do you remember three times in the book of Mark, he has prophesied this. Three times he has said, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and they will flog me and, and spit on me and, and, uh, and, and, and mock me and then I'll be handed over and I will be crucified. Three times. And here it's happening. It's all happening according to Scripture. Back in chapter 14, we looked at it previously. Concerning Judas, as it is written, Judas did what he did. And this whole story is permeated with Scripture being fulfilled. It is permeated with it. He is silent, and that's what Isaiah told us what would happen. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
That was Psalm 22. That was written about a thousand years before this happened. They hadn't even invented crucifixion, or at least the Jews didn't use it. David was the one that wrote that. He didn't know anything about crucifixion. Is a scripture being fulfilled? They divided his garments, verse 24, also in Psalm 22. They mocked him. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Save yourself! It's prophesied. It's all unfolding as God's plan. They gave him sour wine, vinegar, really. Psalm 69. The bystanders are looking on from a distance. He was assigned a grave, the grave of a rich man. It looks like it's out of control, but you and I have insight, and Mark is counting on us to read with insight. He is counting us when, on us when we hear things like uh, uh, they mocked him. He's counting on us to say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing things, these characters. They don't even, they don't even know what they're fulfilling scripture, but you and I know. I mean, it totally looks like it's out of control, but this is the will of God. Revelation says that he was slain from the foundation of the earth. Looks like it's out of control, but it is God's plan of salvation. He was wounded, and by his wounds... We are healed. Crucifixion involved psychological shame. We tend to focus on the physical, understandably, but uh, we have to get back into that culture of that day. It was, it was the death of a slave. It was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. They would crucify you naked or nearly naked. They put those, those poles those outside the city gate. They were permanent. They were you know, embedded in the ground. Then they made you carry your own, not the whole cross, but the cross piece. I mean, it was very heavy. It was very sturdy. They made you carry it yourself. Jesus couldn't even do it. He was so weak. They got this guy from... Uh, uh, Cyrene, that's in northern Africa. He was visiting uh, Jerusalem at that time. These poles were only about uh, seven feet high, probably about that high, just enough to get your feet off the ground. If you ever see a picture like an artist's depiction with, you know, the crosses, the three crosses, woo, way up. That's, it's, I mean, when these people came up and were mocking Jesus, it was like they were looking at him just right here. Just almost eye to eye. The battalion, the, the soldiers mocked him. They put this purple, you know, this purple robe on him. It says the whole battalion. How much is a whole battalion? If, if, the, if the larger group was up to full uh, strength, it would be 6,000 soldiers, and a battalion was one-tenth of that. 600 soldiers. 
Maybe it was only 400, 450. How many people are in this room right now? Uh, 200, a little more than 200. That's a lot of people mocking, bowing before him. Great psychological shame. And then, of course, there was physical, uh, physical torture. About a year ago, I was speaking to you about the death of Jesus, and I cited this article. You, you may remember this. Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, 1986, on the physical death of Jesus Christ. It's written, you know, it's a medical journal. It's a world-class medical journal written in very, you know, technical language. Some of you in the medical professions would understand it a lot better than I would. But it goes into great detail on what is going on in the body when one is crucified. It's terrible. The article concludes that death finally comes from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. What does that mean? Hypo, under, like a hypodermic needle under the dermis. Hypo means under. Volemic refers to volume. The idea is that Jesus was so dehydrated and he was bleeding and he was sweating that his blood was below the volume, the plasma in particular was below the volume it should have been, and it was just hard for the heart to pump. It keeps pumping, but it's, it's sluggish and thick and hypovolemic shock, exhaustion, asphyxia. When you're suspended like this, your rib cage is up and your diaphragm is up, you can't exhale very well, and you have to pull yourself to create a little space. And after a while, you're just too exhausted to do it. And the Bible is teaching us that by his wounds, which were many and included psychological inflictions, we are healed. but that is what the Bible teaches us. In this passage, it's showing us that the death of Jesus opens the possibility of spiritual life for us. And the way this passage depicts that is with, did you pick up on that part? The veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. What does that mean? This veil was a major work of art. It was woven, it was about 75 feet high, and it was ripped for no cause. You know, like there weren't like, you know, moths eating it or something. It was ripped from the top to the bottom. What does this mean? The veil was between the, the outer part of the temple. The priests were allowed to go in there and do some duties. And then this inner part called the Holy of Holies. And uh, uh, no one was even allowed to go in there. That was where the presence of God dwelt, at least in the Old Testament times. And what is, what is Mark showing us? The way is now open. You can have a relationship. Access is granted. 
the veil of the temple ripped from top to bottom. That word ripped or rent, like to rend, to rend your garments, it's only used twice in the book of Mark. The other time was way back in chapter 1, the baptism of Jesus. The heavens were ripped open and the Spirit of God descended on Jesus and the voice of God the Father, this is my Son, my beloved Son, What irony. The first time the heavens were ripped open was affirmation and blessing and anointing and go out and serve me and and do your work and I am with you and I affirm you. And the second time, the heavens are ripped open. No affirmation. No voice of the Father. abandonment for you and me. He was wounded and by his wounds we are healed. Now how does that work? How does the death of this, this terrible, terrible death you know, so long ago, 2,000 years ago, how does that somehow give me access to God? And I no longer have to shrink back from God, and I no longer have to, to fear Him because I'm in my own sins. How is it granted me? How, how can I call Him Abba, Father? How does that work? This is a deep theological mystery, how the death of Jesus heals us and creates life and the veil of the temple is ripped. But somehow, somehow there was a great spiritual transaction. The Bible says our sins somehow were loaded onto Jesus in that moment. My God, why have you forsaken me? Good question. Because at that moment, is it 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, says he became sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. And that is what we believe. We do not trust in ourselves for our own salvation. We believe, we trust, we have faith we yield to this great spiritual transaction that he had accomplished 2,000 years ago. Do you believe this? I'm not asking if you grew up in the church. I'm not asking if you're a nice person. Both of those are good. (laughs) I'm saying, is this the centerpiece, the core belief of your identity. I am a believer in Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Savior of the world. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have 
everlasting life. Do you believe this? Has, is there, was there a time when you deliberately confessed your belief? Lord, I, I grew up in the church. I did this. I, I'm trying to be a nice person. I do this and this. But I just want to say, Lord, I believe in you and what you did 2,000 years ago. If you have not done that, made a deliberate, conscious commitment of yourself to Christ, this is an excellent morning to do that. Here as we've read his holy word about the mocking and the veil being ripped and the crucifixion. My God, why have you forsaken me? This is the morning for you to say, Lord, I've been kind of hazy about this. I, I've been kind of just going with the flow. Uh, I, but this morning, I want to say, I believe. I claim you as my Savior. Help me to live in that strength. Now, if you'd like to do that, if you would like to make a solemn commitment of yourself, if you would like to believe then I'm going to be available after the service today. I'll be standing around up here. Come and talk to me and let's see if we can't, if we can't seal this deal and lead you to true belief in Christ. There will also be two of our uh, prayers up here. Either of them would be happy to talk with you more about this, pray with you, listen to you, and agree with your prayer. Lord, I believe in the death of Jesus my Savior. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you will help us to believe in this tremendous spiritual transaction that you have accomplished through Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.